Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. My co-host Joe Stewart and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga that originate in India. We also wish to honour the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I hope you are doing well. I'm good. It seems life is moving a little bit closer to what we might call normal every day, and I'm really happy about that. We've been getting back into teaching classes at our studio, Garden of Yoga, and it's been great. I do have to get used to expending a bit more energy than I have been during lockdown, but I think I'll get there. I'm really excited about today's episode. It's a conversation with Mark Workman. Mark's led a really interesting life. He has a degree in theology. He's lived as a solitary Taoist monk for many, many years, and he is a committed yogi with a deep, deep practice. Mark has also been living as an amputee after one of his legs was amputated in 2017. Since then, Mark has taken what he's learned over a lifetime of practice and is sharing his knowledge and wisdoms with other amputees. It's a really inspiring story, and he is a super inspiring guy. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia, registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. All right, that's enough from me for now. Let's get into our conversation with Mark Workman. All right, Mark, so good to get the chance to speak with you today. Thank you so much for catching up with us. Perhaps we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. I was born in Sydney and I grew up for the first, I don't know, five years of my life in Seven Hills in the Western Suburbs, which was seriously Housing Commission working class. And then my mum died and I spent my young life growing up in Greenwich by the harbour in Sydney and pretty much stayed there until I left home at 16. And I went to a nice Greenwich primary school and then I, for some, in some fashion or other, I got into North Sydney Boys High School, which was a really important thing in retrospect. And so, yeah, I grew up in Sydney doing all the the Sydney boy things of the 60s and 70s. It was a fun place to be in the 70s. But I never liked the city. I, my grandparents had a block of land in Warramoo in the Blue Mountains. And being a couple who'd brought up children during the Depression and the Second World War, they were pretty independent. So we had our own vegetable garden and my grandfather had a citrus orchard. And I was basically left alone to run around in the mountains when I wasn't helping in the garden. So when you've got those two choices, you know, rattling around in the city or charging around in the mountains, I chose the more rural option. And so at 16, I, I left home oh, largely because I had to. It was completely intolerable with my father and my stepmother. And I left Sydney pretty much as soon as I could and went to central Victoria where I was a rouseabout with shearing team and carted hay and did all the things fit young blokes did at that time. And at some point in the process, I uh, got clobbered by a 
a piece of wood, a very, very large piece of wood. And so had one of those now famous near-death experiences and started taking the stuff very seriously after that. So I'd always been a fairly serious kid and I had a background, started really studying Zen when I was 14 as a way of surviving my stepmother. And so with that sort of background and near-death experience at 18, my life went on a particular path after that. So that's, that's sort of the, the beginning of me. Right. And I know you have a degree in theology. Is that sort of what kicked off that type of exploration, I guess? Yeah, it's exactly what kicked it off. It's, a, it's a kind of a, a strange story in a way. I, I came out of the, the near-death experience with a, a profound sense that there was work to be done. And I also, I had not grown up in anything like a religious, religious household. My, my household was uh, predominantly a political one. And I thought, well, I'd better work out what all this religious nonsense is about. And I came to the conclusion that there was no point in me pretending to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever else as an 18-year-old in Western culture. I needed to understand why the people in my culture bothered to go to church and what all this religion thing was about. So I, I was in more hope at the time when that happened, so I trundled off to Port Macquarie and went to the church. It was on the top of the hill, not the ones around the bottom, which turned out to be the Anglican church, and the next 10 years is history. But you did gravitate back towards the Eastern wisdom traditions, right? Would you like to tell us about that journey? It just makes sense to me, and it always has. I think from a very young age, the fact that I'm conscious has always amazed me. It's just like the most extraordinary thing that I'm aware. How's that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, by the time I got involved with the church, I was pretty well read in the wisdom tradition literature, largely Zen and Taoism. But probably the most important sort of experience along that path was reading Thomas Merton's Zen and the Birds of Appetite. And Merton was a fantastic interpreter of Zen for the West, but he was also a Trappist monk, you know, a pretty serious mob. So there is, I never found a problem at the spirituality level. There isn't. The church has done, and religions don't invent reality. They attempt to interpret it. So I never found a problem with orthodox Christian spirituality and I always gravitated, gravitated towards the more monastic expressions of that because that's largely where it lives in the Christian church. So, yes, the wisdom traditions were really my heart and that view of things was always at the heart of the way I conducted my life, but it wasn't in any way contrary to the, to the spirituality that I was pursuing. Like, for example, my, my religious heroes in the Christian church would be the Desert Fathers, especially St. Anthony, who's obviously the most famous one, as Gregory of Nyssa, who's the first person to introduce the idea that God is infinite and we grow infinitely into the infinite. He, was a, he wrote in, I think, the third century, and the book that I'm talking about is The Life of Moses by Gregory of Nyssa. 
So there were all these extraordinary spiritualities, none of which anybody seems to look at anymore. So there wasn't a conflict, but that said, I guess at the end of the day, the dogma and the particular place in certainly Western society that the church has got itself into by all the various historical accidents and means that it did left me quite dissatisfied. The idea that anyone can absolutely say in conceptual language what the reality is in a universe which is actually properly understood by non-conceptual awareness just struck me as fallacious. I just couldn't get my head around. And the fact that people argued about the most irrelevant things. So those things annoyed me. But I think secular Christian culture put me off, but I would be more than happy even now in a Christian monastery. Monks are pretty much the same everywhere. And so is that one of the things that drew you to the more... I guess, embodied physical practices like yoga and qigong when you wanted to experience this stuff on a more physical level? Yeah, I never, I mean, if you take the Christian part of my life into account, there's a whole lot of theology around what a sacrament is. And that's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. And really, if you just sort of go on on about that's, we're using the word spirituality, it'll do. If you're just going on about spirituality as an intellectual pursuit and it's not embodied in your life, then it, you're not really doing it. And what drew me to yoga? Wow, that's very interesting. I just was always drawn to the yogic lifestyle, probably as expressed in the yamas and niyamas. It just seemed to me that if you could achieve that, there was some real substance and some real logic to it. And the physical stuff, I'm a very physical guy, I was a very fit young bloke. I found the physical stuff, well, it's, it's like the best way I can describe this is the way my teacher, A.G. Mohan, explained the, the, the eight limbs, you know, they start at the most, at the coarsest and grossest and go to the most refined and the subtlest. And so this is a process of, of getting into a meditative state, if you like, or heading towards samadhi. And you're doing your practice. It's good for your body, by the way. But if you're concentrating and doing it properly, it's taking you on that path towards being focused and it's it's great you know as a, as a process for getting into meditation if you time your movements with your mantra and you do the breathing as you're supposed to and all that stuff it's completely absorbing so i was drawn to it because it works and i think outside of some spectacular people i met in the christian church those outside of those characters what i found more than anything as i was looking around the world for something that made sense was a whole lot of people said stuff but there was no evidence it worked and when i my first lesson with mohan he said look if i say something do something and it has this result and you do it and it doesn't have that result then don't believe me i thought wow that's refreshing <laughs> and so 
the, the the reason I got drawn to yoga and then subsequently Qigong and blah, 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 is because it works. You don't have to have some mysterious sort of idea in your mind about how the universe is structured and what your relationship with God might do. Just do your practice and it works. I'm a very practical person. I've always had that attitude to things. You know, well, that's all well and good, whatever it might be I'm being taught, but so what? What difference does this make to my life? And I guess looking back at the Christian thing, there was a lot of stuff that was interesting in my intellectual development during that period when I was studying was amazing. But there's a whole bunch of fine points of theology where you look at it and go, yeah, well, what difference does it make? What's the point? And I found with yoga, the point was clear. It, it made a difference. I dealt with all sorts of dramas after some nasty, traumatic childhood things. And I was more able to deal with that. I was less reactive. My body felt lighter and more comfortable. So we might as well stick with this. So that's, what, that's how I was drawn to it. And then I was introduced to the Yoga Sutras. And I remember while studying the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras, and we were dealing with dukkha, suffering and being miserable and stressed and all that stuff. And the whole logical progress in the Yoga Sutras relating to that and how to deal with it just struck me as the most practical and the most obvious philosophical anthropology, if you like, sort of study of the human state that I'd ever heard. It was just, that's me, you know, <laughs> he's talking about me. So that's how come I ended up with yoga. And you mentioned A.G. Mohan. Have, have you had any other key teachers? There was a lady I started with way back, and I don't even remember her name, and she was just doing classes in the, the local rec centre. But she'd studied in India and she was pretty crafty. And a few times she said, well, next week we're going to do this stuff and don't eat before you come. Oh, all right. And other people go, whinge, whinge, moan, moan. And she said, you know, well, look, don't be sooks. <laughs> oh, right. yeah. That's, that, that suits me. This, this sounds a bit real. So she was pretty important to me. But really... The whole thing got serious when I heard Mohan lecture in Adelaide Hills and I got to that by accident. I had, a, I had the only really, really good printer, an industrial-level printer in my particular area in the Adelaide Hills and this young lady came in and I thought was a bit of a space cadet but she was nice enough and wanted me to print this brochure, any number of copies of same. And it was a flyer for a lecture by this A.G. Mohan character. And I went and I, I think it was two days and the rest, as I say, is history. And so I believe you also decided to live as a solitary Taoist monk in the desert for 16 years. And I'm really intrigued because everything you've been telling us, it's really like grounded in the physicality of the world and in everyday life. Yeah. Where did the, oh, what's the word? solitary practices come back to the fore and the kind of stepping away from the life as a householder. Okay, you've got exactly the right word. So I lived as a solitary. You know, 
99% of the time, you're just doing the stuff everybody else does. You know, you've got to do the washing. You've got to have the clothes sorted. You've got to feed yourself. You've somehow got to survive. You've got to do the veggies, you know. It's not really as rarefied as people think. And I guess the decision to do that was because I'd gotten to a point where my life had fallen to bits, you know, marriage stuff and all those things that seemed to happen to people. And it struck me that I wasn't going to get genuinely further down the track until I worked out what was going on in my head without having the opportunity to blame other people. So what's the real benefit of being a solitary? You get to enjoy your own company after a while, but you haven't got anyone else to blame. The life that you've created for yourself after a couple of years is the life you've created. And it's, uh, you know, so it has a chastening effect, but it's also an enormous amount of stuff you can reflect on and go, how the hell did I get here? You know, why am I feeling like this? Or why do I have this relationship with Mary down the road? And this is all my doing. Why am I doing this and how is it happening? So there's an enormous amount of stuff to reflect on and a lot less distractions. So it's um, the chance to be silent is ever present. And I kind of like that. I'm just wondering, would you say that that lifestyle is quite compatible with living in the outback? Oh, look, yeah. I mean, nobody notices I'm any different from anybody here. There's a lot of people living quite solitary lives and isolated properties. One of my good friends is 150 k's from Coba, lives by himself on a 60,000 acre property. No one thinks anything of it. And intriguingly, we have a great deal in common simply because of that experience of, well, this is the real life I've made for myself and there's no avoiding it. And I think that's great. I've got another question because you're pretty switched on online. You've got a YouTube channel and now you do a lot of online teaching. How has technology changed how you define your life as a solitary? Would you still go on the internet or is that also something that you've opted out of or would you kind of just use it for necessities the way that you might use a shop to go and buy food? First of all, it's important to use a solitary isn't a hermit. So I use the internet and I've been, you know, I, I paid for my way through life as an IT systems engineer. So I know the computer stuff pretty well. And it is no different from anything else. Uh, Let's take going out for dinner. You go out for dinner every so often. It's a lovely experience and it's got all sorts of benefits. And if you do it every day, it's not really going to be that good for you. So the idea that I use the internet, it's a great source of information, fantastic way of getting access to all ancient documents and good translations and discussing stuff with people. But you've got to use it consciously. You've got to go, ah, I find myself clicking aimlessly, time to turn it off. So it's not really any different from anything else you do. It's a question of consciously using it to go in the direction you've chosen to go in, benefit your life, self-cultivation, whatever language you like to use. I think that practice of I've been online long enough, it's time to switch it off is something that I myself have been noticing this week, how you hit this point of, oh, I'm not being productive and it's actually making me feel worse now. And it's really easy to get sucked into that scroll and for hours to pass by. So I think it's 
kind of an interesting insight for all of us, whether we define ourselves as solitary or not, just that mindful use of technology, the way that we'd mindfully use anything else in life. Absolutely right. And one tip I've got, if you are attempting to do that, is the screen. Put something over it. So I've got a lovely piece of material that goes over the rather large screen I have in the lounge room. And if I'm not using the computer, I'm not looking at it either. Because it is it's a dopamine-driven kind of reaction that we're having. It's addictive. We need to turn that off. So and I've spent enough time in front of screens to know, you know, you, you go to a room with people who are, it doesn't have to be the internet. It can be people who are just TV addicts, right? And you're all sitting in the lounge room talking to each other. The TV's not even on and they're all looking at the flaming screen. I'm, I'm kind of curious. You described yourself as living as a solitary Taoist monk. Why, why did you land upon Taoism rather than some of the other traditions that you obviously well studied in? That's a useful question. A, because it is the most open of all of the self-cultivation traditions and spiritual traditions, if you like, and B, because it resolutely does not put its finger on dogma. I mean, just look at the first verse of the Tao Te Ching, which if you were to translate it or transliterate it, it says the Tao that is the Tao, sorry, the Tao that can be Taoed is not the Tao or translated the way that can be mapped is not the way. And it's always leaving that door open to a non-dualist perception of the world. Tao can't be defined. That's its point. But it's the source of everything that can be. So I like the... After my experiences with Christianity and some experiences within the Hindu world that were not entirely positive, largely because of doctrine and dogma, I found the the Taoist thing very attractive and even life in a Taoist temple, it's it's a meritocracy. The judgment is on effectively how well you're doing what you're doing. So I guess that's a, a way of answering the question. I also rather like finally identifying the subject of ultimate concern, which we would call God in Christian sort of context, isn't represented by a human form. It's represented by this Tao. It's just the way. And I think that whilst I have a great deal of time for the Shiva Shakti mythology, and I think it's extremely useful, Finally, we do have to realise that there isn't anybody floating in the clouds in a pink sari, and it's not even a particularly useful analogy. It really is just what it is. And that's what we finally have to come to terms with. So I kind of like that. And I guess to change the topic, yeah, yeah. Your, your leg was amputated in 2017. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and maybe how your practices might have helped you get through this obviously difficult time? Sure. That's a really important topic. How I lost it, I have a rare blood clotting disorder. I'm homozygous for factor five leading, which gets worse as you get older. And clearly my femoral artery was in deep trouble for a long time. So finally my femoral artery blocked and bush medicine and the issues of health in Western New South Wales we can skip over, but there are issues. 
But the more important thing is how I dealt with it. And I think those, that's really important because it talks about the practical realities and the practical application of not just yoga practice in the sense of asana and a bit of breathing, but that whole perspective or that whole way of understanding life. So the first thing is not to identify with the pain. There's an enormous amount of pain for a long time before they cut your leg off. Now, that doesn't mean you don't feel it. But just as a starting point, I'm able, I was able to go, this is happening to me. This is something I'm experiencing. This is something I'm aware of. And I do not like it one little bit, but it isn't me. I'm the awareness. And it puts the whole exercise in perspective. And so it's not quite so traumatic. And it's not quite the end of everything. So that's the starting point. Now, fundamental basics like doing a lot of pranayama, <laughs> miles of that, having the techniques to keep myself emotionally under control and having some routine. So I had a, a hospital, a routine in hospital. I got up and I, I did some Taoist religious practices and I did some pranayama and started the day at six o'clock and made sure I got dressed. So I had some structure to my life rather than just lying in bed mindlessly looking at the TV, which is what a lot of people in the ward were doing. And you have the chance to interpret the experiences you're aware of really in any way you want. We largely interpret them the way we do because of our history. That was Sam Scaras. And so Instead of going, oh, I'm stuck in hospital and it's horrible and miserable, I thought, well, this is fantastic. I'm being, you know, looked after by some of the best medical services in the world. I'm fed um, and I don't have to do anything. This is the perfect opportunity to meditate for as long as I like. And uh, so I did. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that in, in practice, what does it mean? It means I could use pranayama and I could use meditation practices to A, deal with the emotions, and there are a great deal of them, to deal with the, the fear that goes along with pain. One of the things that makes pain a great deal worse is how much you're afraid of it. So reducing the sympathetic nervous system response to the pain, which is simply doing your pranayama properly, reduces the you know your experience of pain makes things a bit more manageable and i was able to use all of those things to keep my my life in perspective and physically even though a large amount of the time i was flat on my back in bed i was able to use sort of a it's pranayama but very focused on how you're breathing some tibetan practices that i'd picked up to keep my torso healthy to keep my spine straight to keep my pelvis and my shoulder blades like perpendicular to my spine and keep myself physically well enough so that when I did get a prosthetic leg I could just stand up and walk in it so that's kind of that's the reality of it what I experienced though was how much unnecessary suffering people were going through just for simply the want of a little bit of knowledge and some simple practices, nothing extravagant, nothing weird like I've done, but just a few clues could reduce a lot of suffering. And so that's how come I kept on teaching it. And so you 
had these practices quite well established for yourself while you were in hospital and before your rehabilitation even began. What are your experiences sharing them with people who are maybe new to these practices and are only discovering them after their surgeries? Positive is the first answer to that question. I teach stuff that's really simple and practical. If someone is inclined to want to know a bit more of the tradition or whatever, I'm more than happy to teach it. But the first thing, you just teach people pranayama properly. And they find, perhaps for the first time, they can change their state on purpose by their own decision. And for a lot of people, that's a revelation and a very positive one. Beyond that, I obviously put a lot of effort into helping people to be physically symmetrical and balanced because being an amputee, your life is by definition asymmetrical, every step you take. And that causes physical distress, giving people some simple answers to that and some simple things to be aware of so that they can counter this fundamental asymmetry, which is going to be the fact of the rest of their life, just produces a great deal of physical relief. And that's often commented on and welcome. And I think the fact that I'm an amputee, I've been through the process, this isn't theory, and I'm not there to sell a course or convince someone that my worldview is the same. I'm simply saying, look, this worked for me. Give it a go and see how it works for you. And because it's coming from an amputee to an amputee, it gets accepted and people are prepared to give it a go. And of course, when they give it a go, they get a little bit of benefit. And so, ah, now I'm in control of some part of my life. I thought I would would never be in control of again. And that experience is always positive. Hello, Ran here. Just wanted to talk about our Patreon page. Now, Patreon is a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 US a month. High tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. If you'd like to help us with a small monthly donation, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast and join the gang. We're a yoga gang. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Mark. That really stands out to me, even from you sharing about your own hospital experiences and from being there while Ran was in hospital for quite a while. So much stuff is done to you. And your health is in the hands of other people who obviously you're grateful for, but I think it would be really powerful to have someone put your health back in your own hands and to give you tools that you could do for yourself. Like that would seem like a real turning point after such a serious medical, I mean, I'm sure that it's not the end for a lot of people who have lost limbs. Like, you know, they will still have ongoing treatment and maybe ongoing conditions, but to have this path where it's not about the medical system, it's about you being in your body and empowering yourself to feel better. Yeah, that's actually extremely important. 
put your finger right on it. And it's not simply that people are in control of your body or your health, which as a matter of fact, they're not. Your body heals itself. All they're doing is trying to provide the circumstances in which your body will heal itself. You can do that as well. But you lose a leg or an arm or both and all of a sudden you're part of the disability industry and you're defined as disabled. And there's a lot going on in the disability industry, which presumably is well-intentioned, but there is the shadow of the Victorian age. And if you're disabled, therefore you're not completely capable. So I've lost a leg and an enormous number of people, including people who should know a great deal better, tend to assume you're cognitively impaired as well, simply because you're now a disabled person. So obviously we use the language of you've got a disability, but it remains the same. I don't know how many times I've told people who are, have got some service or other that I'm making use of that I don't want their help. I want their professional services for which I remind them I'm paying. And it's not about me being a helpless individual who needs to be looked after. I'm actually a person in charge of my own life and I need some services to achieve the goals I've got, I've got for myself. So that change of your perspective on the world and your perspective on the way your relationship with the people assisting you is really empowering. And before we started talking, you sort of mentioned that something that people who are amputees have problem with is, is sort of that spatial memory or spatial awareness. Would you like to talk about that? And do you feel that the sort of physical practices, is it possible for them to aid that in any way? Sure. First of all, losing a, you know, limbs are heavy. <laughs> so you lose a limb and your balance changes completely. And where you just naturally put things, how you naturally move, everything you've done in your life before, every time you move and even sitting down is different. So all your tiny little habits, the way you reach for something, even opening a heavy door, you're going to have to have a strategy for. So First of all, that's frustrating and being able to deal with that frustration and say, look, hang on, I'm going through a process, I'm here, it's getting better and, and not just collapse from the frustration and anxiety, that's really beneficial. But to the second part of your question, does the physical practices of yoga, asana practice help? Absolutely, absolutely. Because what we're able to do in an asana class is break down fundamental physical movements. I mean, a forward bend, for goodness sake. It's just touching your toes, unless you've only got one leg, in which case there's a whole lot of balance issues involved. Standing postures are quite challenging for amputees. So we break it down and we observe the body, our body very slowly and very deliberately doing something, get an idea of, oh, this is how I can move now and stay balanced or not fall on my head or whatever the issues are. And then as you go about your, your daily life, you can incorporate those lessons. So a, a simple example, I had a, a student, lovely lady actually, who always got dreadful sciatica when she was driving and she was talking about she, she would drive to her friend's place who she'd like to visit frequently, I understand. And she had to stop halfway and get out of the car and do stuff because she was just in so much pain. And really all I said to her is just make sure that you're centrally weighted, that your weight is going right into the middle of your pelvis. 
Forget where your legs are. They're not important. They'll find their own way out. Just be balanced and be straight and just pay attention to that. Within a week, her sciatic had gone and she's thinking yoga is the greatest thing that ever, there ever was. So, yeah, the physical practices allow us to really properly understand how we're moving and how we have to change the movement. If you don't think about the change, what you've got is a new experience. So you do your asana practice, you go, wow, I can do a, a standing twist, for goodness sake, that is challenging. And then when you go to pick up that piece of paper on the floor, that experience of deliberately doing whatever asana it might be is still in your mind. And it's more comfortable than the way you were doing it before. So you are motivated to employ that, that way of moving. So it's very applicable to getting around and living a decent daily life. And so did you have mentorship in accessible yoga practices or did you have to figure this stuff out for yourself? No, I've made it up for myself. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it's really working for you and a lot of other people. Well, yeah, and it's just, it's that practical thing. I mean, if I'm, if I've got anything to thank my family for, and I've got a lot to thank it for, but anything, everybody in my family is an engineer, right? Everybody. And so in the hospital, just, okay, there's a problem. It needs solving. I've got these tools, yoga. How am I going to do it? That was just the way I had to deal with my own circumstances. And then obviously there was, a, I can hear Mohan in my head so many times, just with these little sayings he used to pop up with all the time and they stuck 30 years they still there (laughs) and so you know i would looking at for example my the practice i developed when i first started rehab when i first got my leg okay well what i need to do is work out what the stator muscles are doing before i make the movement because that's where the asymmetry is going to start coming from So move very slowly and pay attention to the first muscles that move. Aha, here we can see this one's, you know, engaged completely and this one's not doing anything. Have to address that. So obviously the education I had was really helpful, but then you're applying it to yourself. And I guess that when it comes to yoga and teaching yoga and yoga therapy, that's what I'm passionate about is people learn the principles not just a sequence or an asana or something that might be helpful for a situation, but learn the principles. Then you can apply them to anything, which is all I did for myself. And when I'm teaching other people, I don't assume that their experience is going to be the same as mine. I mean, they've got, we've got some similarities. We're all human, as far as I know. But what I'm doing is saying, okay, we've, you know, we have a principle here. For example, what I was saying before, that pelvis perpendicular to spine that goes into the middle of the pelvis, collarbone perpendicular to spine at the top, that's our base. Right? So as you're moving, think about how that's changing, how it's difficult to keep that structure. You know? So there are then we're going to apply the principles to whoever it might be, whether they're missing an arm or a leg or whatever it is. So accessible yoga to me is about knowing the principles and applying them intelligently and sensitively. So 
I think if anything helped me, it was my time in the Christian church. I mean, I worked in parishes for ages. So I got a very pastoral approach to things. And so that's the way I approach uh, teaching yoga to amputees. What's bothering you? How do I care for you? How do I teach you to care for yourself? And if you take that, match it up with the, the fundamental principles of yoga, you're going to find a way to teach it. And I think starting from that place of actually talking to the person and seeing what's important to them rather than going in there with an agenda of what you think is going to be good for them is also such a powerful principle to begin with. Absolutely. That's like the golden rule. I really don't know anything about someone else's condition. I have got one client who's really passionate about what we do. He's been in a prosthesis for 25 years. What do I know about being in a prosthesis for 25 years? Nothing. So I have to be listening to him. <laughs> he doesn't have to be listening to me. Then all I do is reflect back. Well, you know, if I was having that and applying these principles that I learned, I'd give this a go. Why don't you give that a go? How's it work? And then you get the feedback. Oh, that's great. But, you know, this is happening. You go, okay, just, just tone it down a bit. Don't try too hard. So it's a dialogue, you know. It's not definitely not me going in saying, I'm the yoga for amputees guy. Sit down and shut up. That's just not the way it works. It's a dialogue between two amputees. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of to change the topic a little bit, I, I know you don't like the term spirituality. I think you've described it as a being a little bit floppy. And I was wondering if you'd like to talk about that for a, for a little while. I guess the, 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 the real fundamental reason I don't like it is because it has been so misused and it's such a broad term. It doesn't actually explain anything. And even if we say, well, it's about spirit, what do we mean when we say spirit? It's very difficult to actually, if you want to sit down and analyse what is spirituality, it's very difficult to come up with something. But self-cultivation, which is a Taoist term, so probably I'm biased, but I think self-cultivation describes what we're doing better. And why would I be better having some spirituality? There's no logic in that language that I can access, but why would I be better if I cultivated myself, cultivated my body, cultivated my mind, blah, blah, blah? Oh, I can come up with some answers to that question. And the other thing I think is that if we are genuine about any tradition, certainly the Asian wisdom traditions, we are going to be dealing with an enormous amount of bogus stuff that's been taught and a whole lot of commercialization and marketing and all that sort of gear. And that has compromised a great deal of the language, nothing more so than the term spirituality. So I use the term self-cultivation because I think it describes something. No, that makes sense. And another thing I'm curious about is, I'm just wondering this this event of of losing your leg did that sort of affect your attitude towards all these teachings that you'd learn or was it more a case that I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here is that I guess they more adequately prepared you for what was happening well I mean, yes 
it had more adequately prepared me. And I was very, very fortunate to go into that experience with a long history of practice. But what it did do was cause me to realise just how profound the practices were and just how profound the teachings were. I'd always valued them and I always knew they were fantastic. But applying it in a situation like that and you've got a reference around you of a whole lot of people who are very miserable, that just caused me to value the traditions a great deal more. And when it comes to yoga, I really came to value the the logical presentation of yoga in the Yoga Sutras and the Yoga Yajnavalkaya a great deal more. I realised how flaming accurate they were and how effective they were, if properly understood, properly translated and all those issues we have to deal with. But, yeah, it was, it was a real deepening of my appreciation of the tradition and my appreciation of what I had learned. This is me doing this stuff. You know, my reaction when I woke up after my leg was chopped off was to laugh thinking this is another ridiculous thing <laughs> in life. How ridiculous does life get? This is, you know, just now i got to work out how to live with one leg. <laughs> and so clearly that's not the usual response. And it's uh, so the whole thing really increased the value I place on these traditions, but also very much deepened my understanding. And I think the, the vex, there is a vexed topic of samadhi. Do we actually experience it? Is it difficult and all that sort of stuff, which I've got endless opinions on. But having some considerable experience of meditation, for example, helped me enormously when I was being heavily medicated for pain and you know, heavily medicated with opiates. You're going to be hallucinating, right? And then all the other stuff, they, they stick in you. And I was able in those circumstances to go, well, here I am being aware of this weird hallucination, but not losing myself in it. And trust me, given some of the hallucinations you have, that was good. And, and recognising things. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if this is useful, but there was one time I was on something particularly extreme and I woke up and, you know, I had a, had a couple of tubes stuck in me, as you can imagine, but it seemed as though I was just hooked up to, you know, thousands of tubes and I didn't know which one to unplug so I could go to the loo. And then a nurse walked into the room and instantly the, that hallucination disappeared. I could see the room for what it was and it was all normal or at least all my normal perception. And then gave me a real opportunity to reflect on, wow, how did that happen? Why did that happen? How does my mind work? It's something, you know, you think you're completely out of control on these very, very strong drugs, and then a young girl walks in the room, turns the light on, and the entire experience changes. Wow. Food for thought. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, in some ways, I'd have to say, in terms of my practice and my, and my understanding of the of the teaching, losing my leg was the best thing that ever happened. It's not so good for getting around the house, and there are some things that irritate me about it. Although my wife laughs like she's only got two legs, you know, I got three <laughs> legs, three legs and four feet. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but I'm wondering, yeah. you know, this this I guess this idea of 
isn't this sort of ridiculous, this, I guess, seeing the humor in the situation? Is this something that you share with your students? If they're open to it, not everybody's ready to, to see that side of it. People have different reactions to something as dramatic as losing a part of your body. And depending how identified they are with their body, that's going to have different results. I certainly share it with a lot of people, but it's not something I assume people are open to until they start making the jokes, you know. And you do need to be sensitive. You, you might have someone who's just got all the amputee jokes down pat and having a great time, but you can accidentally push a hot button that triggers something that's really concerning them or they really haven't dealt with. So, yes, we share all that stuff, but I don't assume that people are up for it unless they make it evident. And normally the people that are up for joking and laughing about it, laughing about how ridiculous it is, people have been through the process and they're able to get around a bit and they're seeing their life come together and really, you know, it's not the end of your life. But in the early stages, just before losing a leg, when you know they're going to chop it off, probably up until you can successfully walk in a prosthesis, you've got to be pretty careful. That This is a, a very strange state, you know. Your entire expe- physical experience of being has changed. So not everybody thinks it's amusing. But from my point of view, remember I've got all those years of doing this weird stuff and I'm just thinking, well, this is just another sort of curveball thrown at me by Maya. What do I do with this one, you know? <laughs> another practice that I can really see a parallel with, which we're often told is so powerful when we're going through something really hard, is a gratitude practice. And I know that when Ram was going through his experience, sometimes people would say these kind of platitudes like, oh, you should just be grateful that you're alive and embrace every day. And like you just said for yourself, how it was actually one of the best things that could happen to you in your spiritual practice. But I think we also really to be really careful around telling people they should be gratitude, they should have gratitude and how much it's going to help them to feel grateful for this really intense thing that just happened to them. Yeah, that's that's just a generally when people are saying things like that, it's because they're defending themselves and their emotions about being confronted with the fact that they're talking to someone who hasn't got a leg, you know, or something. It's anyone with serious illness, it's actually quite confronting for for people, and it's them dealing with it that come up with something like that. That you should be grateful. Hmm. Yes, but it's. Finding that is a process and that's a process you have to go through yourself. It's no good someone, it's just like, you know, what's the saying? Never in the history of cheering up has anyone cheered up because they've been told to cheer up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it's the same with with being grateful. I'm immensely grateful uh, for a whole lot of stuff that's helped me survive this and flourish in some ways because of it. It really causes me to think deeply about many, many things in my life, not not just the direct teachings and self-cultivation and other traditions that are like that, but it's the discovering it for yourself that makes it so powerful. 
just mouthing, oh, I'm, gra- I'm grateful because I'm alive really doesn't have a lot of meaning, does it? But that said, this, you know, I get to put, a, put up my hand for Shakti. I think recognising the place of the divine expressed in feminine form, the mother, helped me enormously. That all around me, everything about what is around me is looking after me and breathing, you know. There's this person who comes and feeds me, the world, this physical place and all its energies are sustaining me. So thanks, Mum. <laughs> and that's very important to me. I'm not comfortable, I guess, back to the Christian thing, I'm not comfortable with the... A God of one gender scenario. I just think you've missed half the point, which means you've missed all the point. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Well, I guess we've got one more question for you. And we ask this at the end of all our episodes. So I'm just wondering if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence, if that's at all possible. What do you think that one thing would be? You're not born, you won't die. There is nothing to be afraid of. And in the end, there is absolutely nothing to do. You're already perfect. Beautiful. Well, I think that's one of our most succinct summaries ever. <laughs> well, it's, it's my experience. And I think uh, I alluded to the meditation and this state that gets overly mystified of samadhi, but do your practice. Don't do it for any reason. Just do it. And you will find you will realise that one day. And it's just absolutely true. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And I've learned a lot personally. So, yeah, no, thank you for all, all everything you teach and share. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. Oh, it's been great. Thanks heaps for having me. It's been a lovely chat. You don't get very much opportunity to chat about stuff like this when you live in a mining town. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mark. As I said at the start of the episode, I find him super inspiring and I hope you did too. For our next episode, we're speaking with Amy Weintraub about her book, Temple Dancer. It's a fascinating story about the tradition of the Deva Desi, as well as the nature of creativity, sacred sexuality, and two women living in very different times whose stories intertwine. Amy Weintraub is also the creator of Life Force Yoga, accessible yoga for anxiety and depression. So we also explore mental health and how it informs her writing. Our theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and is used with permission. Get us music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Joe and I both really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aruha Nui. Big, big love.